Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a, another rip-roaring good time here on Breakdowns for Breakfast. I am Monster, and joining me, as always, is Danger. Say hello, Danger. Hello, Danger. Today, we've got an interesting record for you. I've made no secret of my love for new metal. No, you haven't. And this morning, we're going to talk about, I don't want to say one of my favorite new metal records, but one of one that I find very, very interesting. September 7th, 1999's Cole Chambers' second album, Chamber Music. Danger, any familiarity with Cole Chamber or this record in particular? So I remember when Cole Chamber hit the, uh, hit the scene. I remember, was it their first album that had the truck on it, like the ice cream truck sort of thing? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I remember when this album came out. Now, I don't want to say I remember this album or Cold Chamber as a whole because of what they <laughs> sounded like. I remember them because my friends were into them. I do remember listening to them somewhat, but I was never a big Cold Chamber person. They just <laughs> never really did it for me. And I don't want to say that that's because of the music. I, I just... I don't know. I just had stuff going on and uh, I was in my own world. Of course, I was always listening to more than just a section of music. I was listening sure. to an overall. And at this time, I think I was in my second year of eighth grade. <laughs> and um, yeah, so their first album came out in 1997. Yeah. Which, yeah, I would have been the 12 or 13 years old. <laughs> yeah. And this was one one of those bands that really looking at the album is why I bought it. Like the uh, because I bought the first record, I hadn't heard anything off of it, but the weird colored ice cream truck with the creepy guy driving it, and then the back. For anybody that's not familiar, especially their first couple records, Cold Chamber were the goth kids from your high school. They wore fishnet shirts. They had dozens of facial piercings, weird neon colored hair. I mean, they were like, nobody else looked like that, especially in this genre. So this album, I do want to talk about what this album cover was and then also what you were just talking about. But mm -hmm. in a 2023 eye of looking back at this album cover, it is quite clear that this album album cover was created with uh, with word and clip art. It, no, you're mean, talking about their first album, right? Well, I was talking about the first album, just the cover. Like, I remember that yeah. vividly that that truck. But this yeah. album, Chamber Music, I the the Cold Chamber uh, logo on it, the Chamber Music, like it's just very it's not much, correct. Nope, it's not. <laughs> Although it is an interesting thing that they put somebody with a cello, an angel with a cello, on the cover of it. I think that was an interesting choice, but this album sounds like 1999, 2000 hot topic buckles and jinkos. Oh, it most certainly does. Yes. That's what you when, like. That's what you get when you see, like if you watch a clip of them live, you get that look like they were, I, I feel like they were probably sponsored by hot topic or, or uh, do you remember? Um, oh hell. I'm forgetting the other, there was another store at the mall. That was like the goth. one that I used to like called Gadzooks. Gadzooks. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. It was like the, it was <laughs> like the skater goth of uh, Hot Topic. So we've talked about this before. When you have a genre that's really popular, you have your like genre tier list, T I E R, and you've got like your A tier and then your B tier and your C tier. And I think Cold Chamber is a solid B tier. Like they never. They were too weird to ever really break it into the mainstream, but they've always had this really enthusiastic fan base that's always been underground. And a good example of this is they have been, if we were to actually try to go through the history of this band, it is ridiculous. So many breakups and yep. stops and starts, but they, they pulled it together and performed it that, uh, Sick New World Festival in Las Vegas. Okay, uh, the New Metal year. Festival. Yes. Yeah. Which I cannot believe they spelled Sick New World in E W yep. and not in U. Yeah. It it was a missed, it was a missed opportunity. Kind of like when they put out the sequel to Now You Could See Me, and they just said Now You Could See Me Two, and instead of Now You Don't, that was a missed opportunity <laughs> in itself. But they played, and the crowd went nuts. They played in the middle of the day. 
dark, gloomy new metal in broad daylight, 90 degree weather. And the crowd went nuts just because it's gold chamber. Now, Um, if it was uh, that same thing in 99, 2000, half those people would have passed out from wearing all black and, and Jinkos and buckles and, you know, spiked leather boots. And now, so, but what I find so interesting about this album in particular is I was doing a little research and this album was one of their more successful commercially. Yes. But I don't think the fans have any love for this album whatsoever because I was looking at uh, Setlist FM and they don't play any of these songs. None of these songs are on regular rotation when they perform. It's all stuff from the first album or the, the couple records after this one. And I find that really, really interesting. So I, and, I, and I want to talk about it. <laughs> well, what I thought was strange about this uh, is this is very much so a new metal album. And one of the issues I have with this album is that it became a very taxing thing at a certain point because it just seemed to be the same, the same sounds. You know, there wasn't a sure. whole lot of mixing it up where they did mix it up. They did really shake it up and do something yeah. very different. And I think that that's due to the producers on it. I mean, Hell, I mean, Jay uh, Gordon from Orgy was one of the producers. And I mean, right. you know, you definitely get the Orgy sound on a couple of them, but, or you get the Orgy production sound, let's put it that way. Yeah. And, and there's, um, oh, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe uh, their guitar player actually plays on one or two of the songs too. Yeah. Yeah, he does. So I did find it strange that it was a critical and commercial success, but even being a commercial success, it still didn't sell a ton of albums. I think it only sold like 600 some thousand albums or something like that. Like it was, it was a successful album, but it was not a fan successful album by any means. It just, it wasn't. And you know, that's going to happen. You know, it's nice to see the opposite of, cause we see a lot of like, you know, critically, panned album or movie or show or whatever and then a you know fan favorite you know so it's nice to see the opposite of that but you know this is a strange little entry in in our pop and culture I think, genre yeah and, and I, genre. if you if you listen to all four of cole chambers albums you'll notice this one sticks out like a sore thumb it's a bit bipolar they, it is the des the vocalist is known for his scream and his growl, you know, on the first album, especially on probably their most popular song, Loco. He's almost rapping, but it's real, you know, guttural sounding. And then there's very little of that on chamber music. They go back to that Darkest Days and Rivals. But on this album, there's a lot more clean vocal. The production's a lot cleaner. Uh, they decided to add these like atmospheric strings and stuff that they don't do on a lot of the other stuff. And for me, it kind of made it stand out from the pack. And I, I felt like they, if they would have embraced this, they would have almost been like the new metal cure. Like I, I felt like they had the opportunity to really stand out from the rest of the new metal pack at the time there's still the bounce and the grooves and and you hear the twinge of rap here or there but this doesn't sound like a limp biscuit record or it, it does have some similarities to corn i hear a lot of yes. the guitar there yes. um but i feel like if they would have embraced the gothic atmosphere a little more like they do on this record they could have really kind of carved their own niche, but I guess they weren't going to carve anything because they all hated each other and could yeah. barely stand up, write music together anyway. <laughs> so, you know, they, I feel like this recording of this album had the same uh, animosity. The band had the same animosity with each other as Fleetwood Mac did when recording Rumors, <laughs> but they were more vocal about it here instead of just writing songs to each other like they did on Rumors. Right. But, I hear so much corn in the, uh, I wouldn't even say clean vocals. I would say nasally vocals because yeah. it, it is a clean, 
cleaner sound than we heard from vocals in the past, but his voice is just so nasally. And I would say it's actually more nasally in Jonathan Thomas territory or Jonathan Thomas, Jonathan <laughs> Davis territory than in like Billy Corrigan. Improvement. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's more in the Jonathan Davis territory than it is the but, nasally uh, Billy Corrigan territory. If that works, that works. You know, again, I got tired of it. Uh, and, and I think that, they made it very clear on the first record that Dez vocal styling is going to be this. And then coming to album two, they completely abandoned that. And me personally, I've always been a fan of super heavy music with super clean vocals. That's always been something I've loved. And I prefer Dez's clean voice to his screamy voice. So it worked in a lot of places. It really did. And it, it gave the songs a lot more dynamics than any of their other albums have. Yeah. And you know, it was, it was fine for certain periods and certain times. And I do want to go back to what you're talking about, the atmospheric strings and stuff. Yeah. You know, I do think that they put a lot of the strings and all in there and, to have that as a standout part of your album and put a stringed instrument on the cover, I think is a, you know, like, Hey, buy this album and you're, you're going to get this. (laughs) And that's fine. But I finally put a lot of just a lot more synth on this album and just a lot more atmospheric sounds in the background. And there's one album or one track towards the end where I heard a lot of like, uh, samples from movies and things like just yeah. like there was like a laughter in the background that just obviously wasn't somebody laughing into a microphone, you know, and right, right. That, that, that's, that's fine. That's fine. And, and I'll go ahead and address something that you mentioned a couple times in passing already. I really like this album. It's why I brought it to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, it is too long. It is 16 tracks and you could have easily taken two or three out. It gets a little repetitive. Like you said, you hear a lot of the same decisions being made throughout the entire record. Uh, and this is one that you, we, we've had this conversation about, you know, which part of the album we like, which parts we don't, that kind of thing. For me, this album just starts just the first three or four songs are just boom, 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 bangers. I'm, I'm in. And then I start to kind of, Everything, like you said, starts to get a little bit like, okay, this is cool. I heard this already. <laughs> like, and, so and I'll say that there's not a lot of standout tracks on this album. Mm-hmm. A lot of songs have standout parts. Yeah. But, you know, there was no, there's maybe one or two standout tracks that I would put on my liked playlist or yeah. something like that, you know. And the interesting thing about this is that, had I listened to this when I was 13, 14, 15, I probably would have been all over it. Yeah. But at almost 40, damn it, that sucks to say. At almost 40, <laughs> it just doesn't quite hit the same. There's there's a level of when bands try to be like moody and foreboding. And like I, I referenced The Cure earlier, it can come across as cheesy. Yeah. And corny c-o-r-n-y not k-o-r-n-y you gotta you gotta you know make that distinction when you're talking new metal yes Um, you do uh and this album gets really close to that in a couple of parts for me i was 14 or 15 when i first heard this so it was kind of like the depressed little brother to the corn and lip biscuit albums i was listening to so That's that's what you get in the uh b and c tier exactly you get more niche based like this album cold chamber in general but specifically this album only works for a certain group of people and being a pretty happy-go-lucky kid and i'm surprised as much as i did enjoy this album when it came out and i do revisit it from time to time but this is the first time i actually like deep dived really paid attention to each song in, in years and yeah i i agree with a lot of what you're saying I personally like most of it, 
but it does it it does get a little bit taxing. It is too long. Now a sixteen track new metal album is a is a feat. <laughs> now I do want to talk about the the track number that you've brought up a couple times before we really dive into it. So this is a long album, and to the point of where I felt like they were trying to push the album a bit longer in certain places, and that's maybe where we got some of the repetitive sound. And 16 tracks is a long album in general for anybody, Mm -hmm. but 16 tracks and it ends with anything but you, but it does have two limited edition bonus tracks. If you were to get that one. Now I know that you and I briefly touched on this before when we were talking about this, but I did nothing for those two albums for 17 and 18 because they were not the tracks that you could get. If you just bought the album in 1999, those are not actually anything to say on. Same. I actually did not even know that there was a longer version of this until you mentioned that to me. But clocking in at an hour and 16 tracks already, we've got plenty to to work with. Right. I think we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, and what was strange is like when I looked up the album on Wikipedia, that's where I saw the other two tracks. Because just looking on Spotify, those two tracks aren't a part of the album. I had to go right. and find it on right. Spotify. Like I had to find that specific, you know, release so anyway now this is one that i don't know that we necessarily have to do a you know deep dive breakdown of every single song necessarily but what i will say is and and i'll i'll clean this up later uh in my final thoughts but another reason i wanted to pick this album is much like some of the other albums we've talked about it has a vibe from start to finish. It it's not it's not a concept record, it's an idea record like you like to say. It sounds like to me they were like, "Hey, we're Cold Chamber, this is what we sound like, but we want to make a dark, moody, atmospheric version of Cold Chamber." And the, by starting the album with Mist It's just like a 40 second little string yeah. intro. It sets the stage perfectly. Yeah. So I will jump off of what you just said. I don't know if this is necessarily a idea album as much as it is. The band had songs and the producers had an idea because I felt like okay. a lot of these were kind of pushed in a direction by the producers and that shows they can trust their production team and they can trust their recording engineer and whatnot, which that's nice to see. And, and honestly, and honestly, like if you take out some of the string orchestral stuff, the synth stuff, and you tell Des to rough up his vocals and not be so clean, this sounds like every other Cold Chamber album. Yep. But like you said, those production directions that, that really, you know, make it stand out so after you got the creepy intro for me tragedy elku guy Untrue. Fear. Where have you been? And and even into Tyler's song. That two, three, four, five stretch yep. is probably my favorite stretch of the album. I will say that that stretch did kind of jump out at me a bit more. And I had never listened to this track, this album before, <laughs> before we decided to do this. And so we'll say that jumped out at me. But what jumped out at me about tragedy. The Chris, stick to you. Like glue. 
jealous. Was the the vocals kind of had a bit of a vocoder on it? It kind of had a bit a of little, an effect yeah. on it, yeah. And the the uh, the chorus, the uh, stick to you like glue, <laughs> um, a bit goofy, but it also may have been self aware and by design. You know, when you have an intro track like Mist, I try not to count that as the first track of the album. Right, right. And so the first track of the album, it's a little goofy, and it after a bit, it feels like it's a self-aware thing where they knew what they were doing. He knew that his his uh, lyrics were, were silly on that. And it's like, okay, I get it. You're a heavy band that is also silly and has a sense of humor, and I can appreciate that. If you go back uh, and listen, especially the first two albums, they once Devil Driver, which for anybody that doesn't know, uh, Des, the singer of Cold Chamber, is the lead vocalist for Devil Driver, and Meigs, the guitar player for Cold Chamber, is now the guitar player for Gemini Syndrome, which is another great band. They uh, lyrically, Des has gotten a little more serious. But if you listen to these first two albums, they're very silly. Mm -hmm. And but because it's being delivered by this facial pierced fishnet shirt wearing bonkers on stage character, it sort of works. Like it's almost like like one of their most popular songs is called Big Truck. Yeah. And it starts with this weird little guitar like pick scratch, and Des goes, bitch. And then the song starts. It's like they know that they're being goofy, like the way they look and the way they act and stuff. And the other thing about this song, though, that I think is cool is it just starts. There is no intro. Everything comes in at the same time, which, again, coming out of Mist sort of works in its advantage. Yeah. And, you know, because Mist does kind of if you're not paying attention to the fact that it's an intro and you're just listening to it it acts as an intro to this song and it actually, it flows into it rather well. Uh, and something that stuck out to me about this first track, it ends with loops of just random noise. And yes. I was giggling to myself when I wrote my notes because I spelt that N O I Z E. Cause I, yeah, it's a new metal album. I'm going to give very, it that, it, spelling. It's a very strong new metal spelling. Yes. And then, and so then the song after that, El Kugai, is probably my favorite on the record that riff and that groove is is like the sweet spot for me and this one has a little bit more of a rap kind of vibe to it this one sounds a little bit more like some of their older stuff and 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 subsequently newer stuff um but there's still that bridge where it gets really like horror movie-esque you know and i i, I love that so, I mean, I will say the only notes I have for this is it has a catchy chorus and this track does show that he has a good dynamic of his voice control. Yes. And, you know, he does mix growling vocals with the nasally, you know, cleaner in the, in the mm-hmm. verses. And that's really it. It was a, you know, it's a fun song. It's a fine song, but it, it just, nothing really jumped out at me about this one, except yeah. for the fact that he was able it he felt it felt like he had more control over his voice in that one and and that's that's the thing again like i like des des's voice on this album more than any other cold chamber record because yes there is clean vocals on the other records he's a lot more one note on those albums than he is on this one yeah this one i feel like he's trying different things throughout i actually felt like they showed quite a bit of trying to kind of stretch some muscles a bit on this album as a whole. While yes, we did get a lot of the repetitive sound where they really did something different. They really pushed it a little bit further in different directions. And lyrically as well, because yes, you're right. There are some silly moments lyrically, but also these are a little bit more heartfelt lyrically. Des is definitely going through some stuff on a few of these songs. He might be a little depressed. I get the impression that he was cheated on um, at some point during the recording of this. And the very next song is called Untrue. 
Yeah. Uh, and then so, following that is Tyler's song, so it might be a song about Tyler. I don't know. Well, okay, so Untrue, I like this one a lot because I love the way it starts. It's got that real, like, thick bass and the weird little high-pitched guitar, very corn vibe on this one. Very um, corn. Yes, and even the chorus, the way it sort of, the rhythm of the chorus sounds very much like Life is Peachy era corn, which okay in my book for sure but again there's just this little extra production in the background that gives it this eerie atmosphere that makes it its own thing so i don't feel like this track was needed on this album because oh I, man i, like I know that. i know <laughs> but i felt like okay so this this track has some of the new metal hallmarks you know it it has the chunky funky bass you know, mm-hmm. that is in that is like the every radio play of a new metal song from 1999 to, or 1998 to 2002 had the chunky funky bass. The guitar, it's almost like they tried to imitate the Metroid soundtrack in the a guitar. Bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the singer changes his voice within the same track. All of those are hallmarks of corn. For sure. And I felt like it wasn't needed because it took what started as a new metal album and went, okay, yeah, you're trying to be corn now. You're trying to be something else. And I felt like that happened a couple times on this, uh, this album where it was, they were no longer sticking to being a cult being cold chamber and they were cold chamber trying to be something else. I can, I can hear that. I, I can hear that. I, I, I guess I was blinded by my my undying love of new metal tropes that you were, untrue just just really worked for me. You but were, I get your point. I get your you point. Were, I I know you heard untrue and you were like, it is untrue that I have a new metal chubby right now because I'm going to deny that to myself. But it's there. It's very present. Listen, it it's not a limp biscuit. Okay, moving on. <laughs> you mentioned Tyler's song in the real world. Of- now, this one's actually pretty cool because this is a song that Dez wrote for his son, Tyler. Okay. For a, an, a band and an album that is so dark and foreboding, it's cool to hear this positive song where he's basically telling his son, hey, man, life's going to get tough. You got to be strong. Keep your head up. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of sappy positivity stuff. So for me, eh, plus not to mention, it, they're tuned to drop a flat or something ridiculous yep. and it's just chugs and th- that's another thing is Meeg says uh i don't i don't know the exact quote but one time he called his guitar playing style uh caveman riffs and mm-hmm. they very much are they're very much the first four or five frets on the guitar detuned and just jug at different rhythms and stuff but it works Okay, not so all for, the time, but when it does work, it's cool. For anybody listening, I'm sure you know Des is the vocalist. Meigs, and I don't know how to pronounce the last name. Rascon, Rascoon. Yeah, um, they, yeah. He's they a guitar player. He's a guitar player and backing vocals, and he played keyboards on Untrue. And then Raina Foss Rossi, Ross. Uh, she's uh, ba- she's a bass player, and she was actually the uh, wife and mother of uh his children of um morgan the drummer from uh seven dust seven. Yep. and then mike bug cox is on drums so just because you just dropped megs like everybody knew <laughs> who meg i mentioned him earlier i don't remember you mentioning you may have but because I, I also mentioned he's the guitar player in gemini syndrome okay i i missed that i think you spaced out on me there i may have you have no excuse to be spacing out on our deep cold chamber conversation okay this is the most important thing you've got going on right now. Okay. Shut up. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so I do want to know how you are framing, you know, that this is a song he wrote for his son and it's a positive, you know, uplifted song because I got very different from that because correct me if I'm wrong, maybe my notes are just out of order and I just put the wrong thing, but the, uh, the chorus on that is raise your gut again. They don't give a damn. And that doesn't raise your guard again. Guard. Okay. I heard it as God. And so 
Um, I was like, there is, and in my notes it said, there's an anti-religious message in the lyrics. Because that's what I heard. And, but guard, I get, I, I get, I mean. It's, it's basically yeah. him saying that like Des saying to his son Tyler that I'm not always going to be there to back you up and to protect you. You, you know, but daddy's always here. And I always love you, but you're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to do this because that's, and that's something I've struggled with too, being a musician now with, with wife and two little girls is even if I'm only gone for four or five days at a time, I don't like it. Like I, yeah. I, I love being on stage. I love performing. I love visiting new places, but it just feels weird when I'm doing it without my family. Yeah. So I, I like that song, like lyrically, the, you know, it works for me. Okay, I I get that. I get that. And now that I know that it's raise your guard again, <laughs> it, it makes a big difference right. to my interpretation of this song. So now the next couple songs, number six is called "What's in Your Mind." Number seven's called Not Living. I lose I'm dead, I'm fucked in the head, I'm not living without you. My life's a game, my life's a shame, I'm not living without you. This song has been joked, and my life's a joke. And to me, both of these are just I don't know. These two don't don't do much for me. I feel like I like uh what's in your mind at the very end. He he actually there's a little spoken word thing, and then it's followed with some like echoey strings and kind of creepy and I kind of like that to be um, honest with you I never got to know that because the beginning threw me off now the whole thing where it's played backwards, it's called back masking, which uh, a reel to reel allows you to record in reverse and play back. Which I think is a fun thing, which actually a lot of people don't know, but uh, if you record on a tape, it doesn't allow you to record on both sides, just on one side. But the reverse side, the other side, will actually play in reverse. And I was living with a couple guys that were in a band, and we were listening to a new thing that they recorded in my car on a tape deck because my car at the time had a tape deck in it. And we went out partying. Yeah, it was real fast. It had roll-down windows, too. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep your arms in shape. Like, if you go into a dealership and you say, I want as basic as possible, they would pull out that car that I had. And so I, we went out partying one night and uh, the next morning I got my car to, um, I don't know if I was living with them or just hanging out with them. I know I lived with them at some point anyway, but I got my car, I guess to go to work or something. And it was just quiet. I was hung over and it was, okay, we're just going to go in the, in the quiet of this. And then out of nowhere, it was, and just super loud. Cause you know, we were listening to it stupid loud. Anyway, I like it when a song is weird. I don't like it when it starts weird and then turns into something different. And so this song started with a weird touch and then turned into a Sepultura song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then Not Living. It sounds like another corn rip. It, it it's It's got the weird high-pitched guitars in there. The bass has that... the the. Verses have that rattly bass going on. Just, I don't know. Like, this one just didn't do much for me. It was another one of those where it was, okay, we've heard this. Yeah. Yeah. But then, track eight comes along. Shock the monkey. Darling, please. Yes. No, but at this stage, I don't think anybody was expecting a Peter Gabriel cover featuring the Prince of Darkness himself, Ozzy Osbourne. So I feel like, you know, this 
album fell into where everybody felt like they had to do a cover on an album and yes. they picked this song for some reason. Okay. So there's different classifications of a cover to me. So you have a cover where somebody plays a song straightforward. It is what it is. They do the same exact thing. They make it their own or they just do a bad job of it. And where does this fall? Uh, they did the same thing. They, 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 they performed the song with Ozzy Osbourne. Like that's what this is. It was, okay. so it had all the new metal tuning <laughs> And yeah, yes. you know, so they pretty much went, we're going to make a new metal shock the monkey with Ozzy Osbourne, but you can listen to this version. In fact, I did this. You can listen to this version and it has the same rhythm. The, the, yeah. everything's the same about it, except they just put some distortion on guitars and, and whatnot, you know, and a best version of where they took a song and completely changed. It was all along the watchtower. You know, it was a Bob Dylan song that was garbage, which most of his songs are garbage. Monster's nodding his head in agreement. I know he's <laughs> nodding in silence and not to where people can hear because it is a controversial <laughs> opinion controversial to have. Topic, but I don't care. I think Bob Dylan's one of the most overrated people on the planet. Absolutely. Anyway, good songwriter uh, for other people. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in uh, this he case, should... he, he wrote all in the Watchtower, and then Jimi Hendrix made it amazing, and then he made it a rock song. Yeah, right, and then. Dave Matthews came along and kind of took Jimi Hendrix version of it and Ooh. and changed it around a little bit. I think I've heard Dave's version. Dave's version's not bad, and I'm not a big Dave fan. I mean, yeah, his album "Under the Table of Dreaming" was was good. Under the Table and yeah. Dreaming and Crash. After that, I sort of lost interest. I like those first two though. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I remember "Under the Table of Dreaming" and I enjoyed it, but but you know I can't tell last time I listened to it. But you know what's not on either one of those records? What? A cover of Shock the Monkey. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and is, we got okay. a little sidetracked there. I'm sorry I threw us off, but... It, yeah. it needed to be said. Bob Dylan sucks. So, yeah. here's the... <laughs> All that to say I, Bob Dylan sucks. <laughs> yes. Okay. To your point about cover choices, I feel like you're exactly right. This was the day and age where, especially if you were a rock band or a new metal band, you put a cover on your album. And it worked for Limp Biscuit. It worked for Orgy. It worked for Alien Ant Farm. Why not? It worked, it worked for Marilyn Manson. I mean, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But here's the thing. Why pick such an obscure song? Like this was a, like a, a mild hit back when it first came out, but Peter Gabriel had huge songs. Yeah. So and to your point, if they were going to do something a little weird with it, and really like embrace the fact that it's a weird song to begin with. Yep. I don't know, but you're right. They kind of just play it straightforward, just detuned. So here's, and I couldn't find this and I looked for this. I think the reason why shock the monkey ended up becoming a thing was because they had Gordy there from, from orgy and mm -hmm. he was friends with Ozzy, you know, Gordy been around, played in different groups and stuff. I'm sure at some point he crossed paths with Ozzy and they just hit it off and became friends. And Ozzy, you know, was actually, I know for a fact that Ozzy was friends with Peter Gabriel. They were not oh. musical friends, but they were just friends. Like they, you know, yeah. kind of, they ran into each other at parties and stuff all the time. And That's I cool. think that it was actually that connection that got Ozzy on the album and then also shocked the monkey as their pick. Cause it was like, Hey, you know what? This would be a fun one to do and a fun one to pull out live. So around this time, cold chamber was a staple on Ozfest, and you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. I'm not sure, but I know that what's her name? Uh, Sharon Osborne became their manager around this time. Okay. So if she was managing them before, that would also be a you know a way to get Ozzy there, but having Ozzy on your song, especially this kind of like when he had his resurgence and Ozfest was like the biggest thing going, that I mean that's a pretty high seal of approval oh, to yeah, definitely guys not like new metal, you know definitely. And this isn't really a new metal song; it's a Peter Gabriel song with new metal tuning, basically. Yeah, you know yes. and. It's a fun cover. Is it yes. is it my favorite track? Not by a stretch. No, but I think this was a good time for it because I yes. think like 
said, it's right in the middle of the album. You've, you've been pummeling us for about 25 minutes now. And so now you start to shift a little. So after Shock the Monkey, you get this song called Burgundy. Did you show me your writing for you? I'd make it storm with the wind like you've never seen before. That is... Not needed. Somewhere between... What? It's not needed. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. To go from... It's, okay, here's what I said. Here's what All I right. said. It's somewhere in between a song and an interlude, and they could have cut it half the length and just made a little moody interlude like they did at the beginning of the album. I don't think this needed to be a full song. I don't think it needed to be a full song, and that's where I say it was not needed. Yeah. Especially after being hit with a new metal onslaught. Yes. And then you get a bizarre Peter Gabriel, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, mashup basically, and mm-hmm. and then we go right back into that same sound that we had before. Mm-hmm. You can't throw something that sounds so different on an album at me without giving me a palate cleanser afterwards, something to kind of ramp me back up into into the next part of the album. It just it felt very disjointed. And that's where I say that this song's not needed because this song almost felt like a forcing of their sound back on us. Now, and and I don't know if this is, you know, intentional or not, but this song actually does, uh, Jay Gordon from Orgy does the production on this song. Uh, and it features vocals by uh, a woman named Amy Echo. She was the singer in a band called uh, Human Waste Project. They were... If Cold Chambers B tier, Human Waste Projects like D tier, like they yeah. never, never really got anywhere. They pretty much played to the local circuit of things. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I, I've I've heard some of their stuff, but it's not anything that I go back to. Like I said, if if you come out of Shock the Monkey, you're halfway through the album. You want to put a little twenty five thirty seconds moody interlude right there okay i'm cool with that but for this to be like two minutes long it just it just feels unnecessary then it goes right back to where we were uh, beforehand with entwined I don't know this this one I feel like you could have skipped Burgundy if you wanted to do that skip it and just go with Entwined because it does have a little bit of the moodiness with the heavy so it's a good way to kind of ease back into it so for Entwined I just have I have a couple notes but one part really sticks out to me this song is swampy (laughs) it this song feels like a new metal swamp to me. Okay. Okay. It just, it feels thick and watery. Okay. Okay. That's a weird way to describe an auditory medium, but I okay. I, I get know. it. I like- does that make sense in some way? I, I don't know if it does. It's just like, when I listen to this song, I was just like, it feels thick. <laughs> <laughs> so to your point, if you want to get rid of Burgundy altogether and you just come out of shock the monkey into this, it's a good, it's not, it doesn't beat you over the head. Like some of the other songs do. It's a good sort of ease back into the back half of the record. Yeah. And with Burgundy, a little cold chamber goes a long way. You know, you don't need a whole lot of it. And I felt like with Burgundy, we got more of it. And it's like, I don't, I don't need a whole lot more of it. And then entwined like i said swampy and thick and it's like i okay we're we're heavy again i get it and then we go into feed my dreams feed my dreams is a 
it's a funny one. There's not much to it. It's a real simple riff. It's Des just sounding scary. It's a it's a solid fun track. <laughs> it's yeah, just it, you know, it's a very generic. Just this is what it is, <laughs> and I don't yeah. feel like I feel like this is a filler track on this one. It's a solid track, but it's it's a not needed, and especially when we're already dealing with this long of an album. It's solid. It's fine. It doesn't stick out, but it doesn't offend. Okay, so if if I were to say my favorite section of the record is tracks like two, three, four, five, that my second favorite section of the album is like 12, 13, 14, because number 12, My Mercy... I think they've never done anything else in their entire career like this song. And for me, I think it really works. I feel like there's an atmosphere to this song. Like you were saying, it's swampy on Entwined. This one to me, I feel like I'm like walking through a cemetery at night or something. I like this one a lot. And I'm actually going to agree with you. This is a standout solid track on this album. And this one really showed me the diversity that they had mm-hmm. individually. And I felt like that was the, one of the first times on this album. I wouldn't say one of the first times, excuse me. I feel like this mm-hmm. was a time on the album. They were like, Hey, we've really been working on ourselves and our abilities to, you know, use our instruments and, then they kind of came together with this, and then you had the uh, production crew on this that were like, hey, we think we can add something. I do feel like the you know the female vocalist on it was maybe... It, it, Amy Echo again. Yeah, um, was maybe not the best choice, but I don't think it was a wrong choice. But her coming in, where she did, and the stuff that was happening at the time really gave me an Evanescence feel. Yeah, and yeah, a little bit. And I think it's funny that that's the feeling that's on this because Evanescence I've seen labeled as the band that killed new metal, <laughs> and I think that's funny. But the the ambient spooky sounds that were happening, yes. And I was having trouble pinpointing if it was in the sounds of it or if it was the guitar that had like a church bell feel to it yeah i think that's just i just think that's background production okay. um more than anything but yeah uh, and and i this is what i meant at the top of the episode where i was saying if they would have fully embraced this they would have been their own thing more so than just another detuned pummeling bouncy new metal band yeah and you know hey i've i've played in a lot of bands that do a lot of different styles and sometimes you do something and it was cool at the time but you didn't enjoy writing it and performing it whatever so maybe it's just a personal thing they they didn't like kind of some of the choices they made on this album but this at least is a breath of fresh air it is um it is and so then the next couple tracks no home no home no Cherry Vegas. Are back to that new metal bounce and groove, but I think they're done really well. So with no home, uh, again, Des is, is talking about some personal stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not very cartoony. Uh, it's very matter of fact. He's he's kind of using an analogy of a broken physical house to describe his broken home, and I think the analogy works. I don't think it's it's a little silly like some of the other, but it's not as silly as some of the other lyrics. You're right. It's not as silly, but that shut up in the callback. I'll kick you out. Felt yeah. very like felt very cringeworthy to me, and I. 
lost this song with that. The, it just, it didn't hold together on that one. But I, I don't will, love that part. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things that I was saying before is that there's not many standout tracks on this, but there are standout parts to a lot of songs. And whether the standout is a good or bad thing is a different thing altogether. But to me, the shut up, I'll kick you out part, that stood out to me on this. And it was, ah, it just, you know, uh, I feel like musically it would appeal to uh, 13, 14 year old danger, but uh, the rest of it doesn't appeal to actually none of it really appeals to me. That song just, yeah. And, do and we've me. talked about this on, on other episodes and, there's a nostalgia factor. There's a certain level of you dug it when you were a kid, so you dig it now, and certain things hold up, certain things don't. Yep. And in the case of the shut up part of Broken Home, uh, No Home, I agree. Yep. I agree. It does not hold up very well. Yeah. But you, you also mentioned Sherry Vegas. Yes. Sherry Vegas is a simple, fun song. That I think again shows her sense of humor because the 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 main line that jumps out of this one is so pleased to meet you, Sherry. <laughs> it's such a silly, stupid line that it doesn't like. It's a straightforward new metal song. It has new metal guitar scratches with a stupid, silly line, and it's almost like you know, with no home, he put a silly stupid line in it in a very serious song which made it hard to you know wrap my head around with sherry vegas it's a silly stupid line in a song that doesn't pull me out of it (laughs) i i think this is a fun one the riff at top at the top of the song is a killer riff simple like like i said caveman riffs but but it works it's got a good groove and a good vibe I don't know the whole story, but I know it is about Sharon Osbourne. I don't know if this was, I, I heard it was written as sort of a jab, but if you just take it at surface level, she was their manager and he's saying, pleased to meet you, Sherry. It's almost like a, <laughs> thank you for being our manager. <laughs> so from what I have gathered from listening to people talk about, Sharon Osborne. Behind closed doors, she's not a gym. No, around. she's awful. Yep. What I understand, she is an awful person to have to deal with. So I could understand if this is a jab. You know, I, I I, that's that. what I've always heard too. Yeah. Yeah. And then notion. Tear people apart. Don't know. It's just a notion that comes to me. It's just a is another one like some of the ones we've talked about before that I, I like this one. It's it's heavy. It's got a good groove to it. The verses are kind of weird and atmospheric again. And we have a special guest on this one, Mr. DJ Lethal from Limp Biscuit does yes. some uh, scratching on it. Which he also did some production work on it, but he you know, that was his his musical contribution was, you know, his DJ scratches. This one had a fun drum intro. The scratches were fun. The chorus was a bit repetitive, but it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, this was not a standout to me, but it didn't, you know, detract anything yeah. from the rest of it. You know, it was, it was a, it's a new metal track. And then you end the album, anything but you. Bullet only harkens back to songs like my mercy and burgundy it has that it's a little bit more upbeat but it still has that kind of dark moody vibe to it um i can see the fog and the mist again i like this one um again i i kind of wish more of the album had more of this in it i will say that this was a straightforward new metal track with a bit of that uh what was the track from before no mercy where it kind of had that extra touch to it 
And so it was kind of a, a well-produced, well-crafted new metal track, which was a smart choice to close the album with, you know, especially yes. after starting the way that the album did. I, I thought it was a good, a good song. I thought it was, it, like... it does feel a bit repetitive at some point at a certain point, mm-hmm. but it doesn't beat you over the head with it. And I think that, so for me, the, the track listing is, is definitely a, an issue on this one, because I feel like these last 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 are pretty good. All of them are pretty good. A couple of them, I think, are, are some of the best on the album, and a couple of them are kind of bottom tier. But there's so much packed into this back half that, like we talked about, if we took out two or three songs, put something like My Mercy as like five or six, maybe, then you have a little bit more of an up and down ride. Whereas the way it's set up now, beats you over the head for 30, 40 minutes. And then the back half has all these like dives and movements. And I feel like if they would have just rearranged it a little bit, this could have been a really like something that people actually talked about and was like, man, remember that cold chamber record? Like that was nothing like any of those other new metal bands were doing. So we had talked before and I think it came up on the the Finch episode, our first episode, where track listings need to kind of be in a certain order so you don't get fatigued and burn out on it. With an album already at sixteen tracks, you are yeah. you're you're running that risk. You know, you threw in a cover of Shock the Monkey that really jumped out and kind of shook it up. That definitely kept it moving, but they didn't hit the marks with keeping this album moving and that is my probably my biggest takeaway from this album is this album loses momentum and feels more like a burden to get through at a certain point to just sit and listen to i feel like it would be fine background noise if it like background music if it wasn't something that you were actively listening to but even at that I feel like it's still something that you would go, all right, I'm, I'm done with this and change it. Knock this to about 13 tracks, rearrange the order a little bit. And I think this goes on the shelf with some of those new metal albums that kind of stand the test of time. I feel like As the, it, the overzealousness they had actually hurt them here. Yes. I, I think that they made the right decision to go more clean to add the strings and the atmospheric sounds. I think all of that was the right decision. But then they kind of got, I don't want to say full of themselves, but then they they just, like, they should have stopped. They should have, because honestly, I feel like it happens all the time. People write an album, and they write 16, 18, 20 songs, and half of them end up on the album. And this is a case where, you, hell, put a 12-song CD out that that really, really clicks, and then six months later, you got a four-song EP that you can release that people are going to eat up. Or, like I said, rearrange these tracks to make it a little bit more of a ride and not so just one note, one note, and then stop, like, bonus tracks. And then, like you said, the the one version had two more songs, couldn't I couldn't imagine trying to listen to 18 songs that are like this yep. in one sitting. Yeah, you know, I never even went and listened to the other tracks because it just didn't seem necessary. And that's the no. thing. If you're gonna put out a special release with extra songs, you wanna make it to where you've given them an album where they want to go and listen to the, those other songs. Right. Now I think that they probably got a bit cocky with having the Osbournes involved and were like, you know what, people want to hear more. People want more of this. Yeah, I can I can see that being a factor for sure. Yeah. And maybe this was a uh, an album that was recorded at the wrong time and should have been a digital release where they're able to release a song or two just individually and maybe. not hurt the album. But what didn't hurt this album was a fact was a, a, a guest musician that we missed on Sherry Vegas. 
the panting in the song was done by Georgie the Pug, which yes. was, I believe, uh, the singer's pug. <laughs> yes. And I just thought Thank that you was for, fun. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. Yeah. I feel like we're, we're already kind of in this part. Um, do you want to give us kind of your closing thoughts here? Okay. I have mixed feelings on this album. In the musical weight balance, they show heart and musical ability. On the other, they show a pattern of repeating certain song ideas, which become taxing as a listener. It's easy to think they thought the production names would make this album come off better, which shows that they can trust a producer. They were a little right. And thankfully, they're saved at times. And even if that's just by a little bit, you know, they've shown melodic sensibility, which the producers are able to use to their advantage. But overall, this isn't enough. The album, at its moments of big, jittery energy and blunt force trauma, looking back, it was all over the place. When this came out, it worked for me and my friends that had big, jittery energy and wanted blunt force trauma. So overall, I give this album a 4.5. That's fair. That's fair. Much like Say Hello to Sunshine by Finch and other records we've discussed on this show, this album has a vibe from start to finish. While still having elements of the straightforward bounce and detuned guitar sound that new metal at the time was known for, chamber music takes it into a moody, gothic direction. It seems that diehard fans of the band view this album as the black sheep of their catalog because it is a huge departure from their debut and both of the records following this one. But for me, that's why I find this album so interesting. The songwriting is a little more unique, the lyrics are a little more personal, and the songs contain far more dynamics and flourishes of gothic production, not nearly as pronounced on their other album. Meigs once referred to his guitar playing as mostly caveman riffs, and that may be true, but where other Cold Chamber records feature almost exclusively those kind of riffs, this one has far more diversity. Uh, it has more hooks and choruses with a little more catchy chord progressions, and while not every song is a classic, and the runtime borders on just offensive. I really don't understand why this album seems to get overlooked in the Cold Chamber catalog. If you're a fan of that low tune chug and groove of this era of new metal, but you like it with a little more of the dark, gothic, haunted house sounds, this could really work for certain people. Sandwiched in the middle of Cold Chamber's short and solid discography, Chamber Music is a more diverse outing and more moments to breathe and atmosphere you can dwell in. I think this album needs a revisit from Cold Chamber fans, new metal fans, and just fans of unique heavy music in general. One to 10, I give it about a six and a half. All right. So that's a 6.5 from you and a 4.5 from me. So that puts us at a 5.5 together. That okay. sounds fair. Which, sounds fair. as cruel as school children, I gave that album a 7.8. You gave it a three, which put it at a 5.4. <laughs> so, this album is just slightly, just by a point one, better than Gym Class <laughs> Heroes. And I came in hot on that one. I remember. You did. <laughs> Sorry. You did. Oh, no. No, it's it's fine. It's fine. I, uh, I I thought about channeling your energy on this album. <laughs> but It would have been deserved. This is not an album that I will ever go back and listen to. This is not an album that I would put into my favorites, even my favorites as a 13-year-old new metal fan. You know, it's just, this it's just is not. One, I will say that when I chose this one, this is not one that I listen to from start to finish very often. Yep. It's one that I pick five or six songs and move on to the next thing I want to listen to. Yep. And that's what this album is as a whole. Yep. You know, For sure. one to two standout tracks, the rest of it I'm passing on. And even those standout tracks are very, they don't stand out real big. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. They stand out real big in the context of the album that you're listening to, but in the greater scheme of things, eh, it's still just a middle of the road, new metal record. <laughs> right. Right. But for me, especially when it came out, I liked that they were, like I said, the moody Gothic little brother of all the other new metal bands. While every other new metal band was wearing Jinkos and Kanga hats, these guys were wearing, makeup and fishnet shirts and adding strings and gothic horror to their music. So, yeah. you know, I admired the, uh, the effort, 
the chances they took, I guess. So, Danger, what album will we be breaking down next week? Well, this week we're listening to Memphis May Fire's Unconditional, and that's what our next Ah. episode will be on. So Nice. Yeah. It's their lesser-known album that I really enjoy. So I was going to say, there are... There are two Memphis Mayfire albums that I have listened to a lot, and this isn't one of them. So I don't know if I've even ever heard this one. I'm excited. This is a really good album. So Good. Uh, all right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breakdowns for Breakfast. I hope you enjoy your day. Later. <laughs>